Hello, everyone. This is Nitin Sill from the Flashpoint History Podcast. Ryan has graciously allowed me to do the introduction to this episode, and I got to thank him for it because of all the different episodes that one can come in on, it is, after all, Thermopylae. It's one of those moments in history that the defiant essence of human nature really comes to life. It captures the human imagination as this last stand of a patriotic army defending its native soil. Courage under overwhelming odds. It's the type of thing that historians perseverate about, that poets write poems about, that Hollywood cranks out tons of money over because the drama is just so good that an entire movie can be made in sepia over it. This is the type of battle that is not only just immortalized, it's glorified. You know, if you take the dramatic view, it's the story about how the king of the Spartans, Leonidas, decided one day to take a stroll with his 300 elite hoplite warriors and take on a Persian army of about one million people. Cue the soundtrack and or catchphrase at this point. Now, of course, the reality of the situation was that Leonidas, along with the 300, had about 7,000 Greek allies, and the Persian army that he took on was about 120 to 300,000 strong, which is still extremely formidable and was overwhelming odds. But he managed to meet them and fight them at a geographical bottleneck in northern Greece known as the Hot Gates, hence the term Thermopylae. And it was here that he held up this army for three days. But what's so impressive is that even with these overwhelming odds, you get these absolutely fantastic statements that came out of this encounter. You know, it was said that the Persian archers launched so many arrows that they would blot out the sun, to which the Greeks would respond, then we shall fight in the shade. And when the Persians initially encountered the Greeks and said, hey guys, why don't you just like lay down your weapons and surrender? The Greeks' response was absolutely fabulous. It was Mulan Labe which means, Persian, if you want our weapons, come and take them. Well, let's make no qualms about this. This was, after all, a valiant last stand. Leonidas and his 300 were slaughtered to a man, but while this was a tactical defeat, it was a strategic victory. It galvanized the Greeks. It brought them together to face an overwhelming and worthy adversary. And the Persian high command, just like the French high command when they went into Russia and the German high command when they did likewise, were soon to ask themselves, my goodness, what have we gotten ourselves into? Okay, that's it for me. I'm going to get off my historical, dramatic, sepia-covered soapbox and let Ryan take it from here. If you folks are interested in other historical podcasts, come check out Flashpoint History. It's available on all the usual sites, you know, iTunes, Google Play, etc. I've just completed a six-part series on the Punic Wars. There's nothing like a world war in the 3rd and 2nd century before the Common Era to make you feel alive. And you don't know the extent of human brutality until you see what the Romans and the Carthaginians can really hash out. Again, that's Flashpoint History, and Ryan, once again, thanks for the shout-out. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 37, Molon Labe. The defeat at Marathon ended for the time being, the Persian invasion of Greece. However, Thrace and the Cyclotic Islands had been resubjugated into the Persian Empire, and Macedon was reduced to a subordinate kingdom of the empire. 
Darius was still fully intent on conquering Greece, thus securing the western part of his empire. Moreover, Athens remained unpunished for its role in the Ionian Revolt, and both Athens and Sparta were still unpunished for their treatment of the Persian ambassadors. Darius, in fact, was even more determined to make war on Greece than he had been before, and this time, it would be he who would lead the charge. Thus, he began raising a huge new army, with which he meant to completely subjugate Greece. However, in 486 BC, his Egyptian subjects revolted due to heavy taxes and the deportation of craftsmen to build the royal palaces at Susa and Persepolis, which we described in great detail in episode 33. Thus, this indefinitely postponed all plans for a Greek expedition. While Darius was making arrangements for an Egyptian expedition to subdue the revolts, which he was going to lead himself, two of his sons began a fierce dispute over which of them should be his heir. According to Persian custom, the king had to make sure it was known publicly who would succeed him before marching out to war, in order to avoid a civil war in the case of his death. Well, Darius had three sons by an earlier wife, the daughter of Gabrias, but after becoming king, he had four others by Atossa, the daughter of Cyrus. Artipazanus was the eldest of the three that he had sired earlier, and Xerxes was the eldest of those born later. These two sons, since they did not share the same mother, entered into a hostile rivalry with each other. Artipazanes asserted that he was the eldest of all of Darius's offspring, and so he should be the heir, while Xerxes countered that he should rule since he was the son of Atossa, who was the daughter of Cyrus, the king who had won freedom for the Persians. Darius had not yet revealed his decision when Demaratus, the exiled, former Eurypontid king of Sparta, arrived in Susa. The story goes that upon hearing about the disagreement between the sons of Darius, he went to Xerxes and advised him to strengthen his argument based on Spartan tradition by pointing out that he had been born while Darius was king of the Persians, whereas Artabazanes had been born while Darius was still just a private citizen. And so, Xerxes followed his advice, and Darius thought that his argument was sound and appointed him as his heir. Herodotus asserts that he thinks Xerxes would have been named his heir anyways, because, as he puts it, Atossa really held all the power in that decision anyway. Thus, having appointed Xerxes as his heir and left him behind in Susa, Darius left for Egypt to suppress the revolt. But along the way, he died from some undetermined sickness in October of 486 BC, after a 36-year reign. His body was embalmed and placed in the rock-cut tomb at Persepolis that had been prepared for him several years earlier. Although he failed to punish the Athenians, he proved himself to be a true equal to Cyrus in terms of accomplishments and leadership. He left behind an empire that redefined the very notions of power and glory. He also prevented a replay of the chaos that followed the death of Cambyses by naming his successor, and thus the throne of Persia was then passed on to his 35-year-old son Xerxes. The transition of power was smooth, due again to Darius and in large part to the great reverence held for Atossa. Xerxes' image, like Cambyses before him, is also defined by Herodotus, who paints the picture of an overly emotional, unstable, and intolerant despot but we will see that he actually was very similar to his father. His first course of action in the spring of 485 BC was to crush the Egyptian revolt, removing its special privileges and reducing it to satrapy status. He appointed his full-blooded brother, Achaemenes, as the satrap over Egypt. 
However, the following year, in 484 BC, he outraged the Babylonians by violently confiscating and melting down the golden statue of Marduk, the hands of which the Babylonian king was supposed to clasp each New Year's Day. This sacrilege led the Babylonians to rebel, but they were easily brought back into the fold. And so, by 484 BC, everything was once again peaceful throughout the empire, and Xerxes began to contemplate his father's quest for revenge on the Greeks. All of his father's advisors, most especially his uncle and Darius' brother Artabanos, agreed that it was not worth it to go back. But his younger friends urged him on, most especially of which was his cousin, Mardonius. Herodotus portrays Mardonius as a somewhat evil advisor who only wanted to become satrap of Greece and had a love for mischief and adventure. Xerxes was also urged on by envoys sent by the Aluidae, who were the most influential ruling family of Thessaly, urging him to invade Greece with the assurance of their full support and allegiance to him. Through these events, Herodotus gives us a remarkable psychological portrait of a young king. At a debate over what he should do, Mardonius, of course, was all for going to war, to gain glory, and to live up to the Persian standard. Predictably, the older Artabanus warned that many things could go wrong. He had much to lose and very little to gain, and it would be better for Xerxes to just consolidate his power in the east rather than worry about western conquest. At this, Xerxes flew into a rage at his uncle. He denounced him and said that if he weren't his uncle, he would have him killed. But then he cooled down, repented, and apologized to his uncle. Herodotus here portrays Xerxes as a hothead. The uncle, Artabanus, is serving as that wise advisor figure, whom we have seen over and over again in Herodotus. Then, with his mind not having been made up yet, on two consecutive nights, when Xerxes went to bed, he had a dream that he was visited by ghosts that reprimanded him for not invading Greece. Having quite literally been haunted by ghosts in his dreams, he was terrified and sought advice from Artabanos. As we have discussed at length, in antiquity and especially in Herodotus, significant dreams were thought to be communications from the gods, warning of threats and dangers, advising on cures for illness, imposing policies, or answering pressing questions. But Herodotus here has Artabanus give a surprisingly rational explanation for dreams when he advised Xerxes, saying, Most of the visions visiting our dreams tend to be what one is thinking about during the day. That night, Artabanus was visited in his sleep by the same ghost, which threatened to burn his eyes out with hot irons if he dissuaded Xerxes from attacking Greece. And so, naturally, he was petrified too, and he relayed to Xerxes that he changed his mind and the god's message is clear. The Persians must destroy Greece. Thus, on the following day, Xerxes made it known to his advisors that the second invasion of Greece was back on. That night, though, he then had a third vision. In this one, he was crowned with an olive bow, from which branches extended over the entire earth. The soothsayers confirmed that this meant that Xerxes would come to rule over everyone in the world. So from 484 to 481 BC, Xerxes prepared for a full-scale invasion, mustering an enormous army and navy from all provinces of his empire. Xerxes' invasion of Greece would become one of the greatest collaborations of strategy, logistics, and engineering in military history. Strategically, his father had made two attempts at Greece, a joint land and sea campaign through Thrace, under the command of Mardonius, and the seaborne expedition across the Aegean, 
under Datus and Artaphernes. The presence of Mardonius as one of his chief military advisors and the difficulty of transporting a very large army across the Aegean probably influenced Xerxes to attempt strategy number one again. But he also wanted to avoid the setbacks that had troubled Mardonius before, so he set about implementing a carefully planned program to ensure the efficient and safe movement of his troops through Thrace and Macedon. The first step was to make a clear path for his navy. In order to avoid losing another fleet around the windy, stormy coast of Mount Athos, he ordered a series of canals to be dug through the isthmus of the Athos promontory. With vast manpower and expertise in canal engineering, Xerxes' engineers took a mere six months to complete the canal across the isthmus. They dug it wide enough that two triremes could row side by side. Herodotus believes that the canal was dug to display Xerxes' power and arrogance, as the ships could have been dragged across the isthmus. Secondly, Xerxes ordered food deposits to be placed at five major land routes through Thrace and Macedon. At White Point, some unknown location on the Thracian side of the Hellespont. At Tyrodiza, near Perinthus. At Doriscos, on the Evros River. At Eon, on the Strymon River. And at Thermae, modern-day Thessaloniki, in Macedon. Animals had been bought and fattened, while the local populations were ordered to grind the grains into flour. These were intended to feed the Persian forces on the march through these areas, but also as a source of supplies for the troops as they advanced into Greece, if they found that the Greeks had employed scorched earth tactics, like the Scythians had done decades earlier. Thirdly, transporting an army by boat isn't practical and would take far too long, so borrowing a page from his father's book, Xerxes built a massive double pontoon bridge of boats across the one-and-a-half-mile Hellespont from Abydos on the coast of Asia Minor to Sestos in Thrace, a feat of engineering that would far surpass what Darius had done at the Bosporus. To this day, this is considered one of the most ambitious engineering projects ever conceived for a military campaign. The first pair of bridges, though, were destroyed by a violent storm. Xerxes was so livid that he ordered his engineers to be beheaded, and he ordered the waters to be whipped 300 times for its disobedience. Also, a pair of shackles was to be dropped into the sea, and one of Xerxes' servants said, Bitter water, your master is imposing this penalty upon you for wronging him. King Xerxes will cross you, whether you like it or not. Herodotus here is once again portraying Xerxes as an unhinged madman, motif we will see quite often in his work. The next bridges built were successful, though. Using 674 ships to make the double bridge, a combination pontoon suspension bridge with thick cables of flax and papyrus and iron anchors weighed the whole thing down. The cables allowed the boats sufficient flexibility of movement in the turbulent waters. Each section of the bridge was built on two boats connected by planks so the entire bridge could ride the waves, absorbing much of the surface choppiness. Then, on top of the ship foundations were laid a platform of solid logs packed with dirt and paved over for a smooth walking roadway. Walls were even built up to prevent animals from seeing the water and getting spooked. And so a steady superhighway emerged over the Hellespont, and Europe and Asia were made one. In addition, Xerxes also had a bridge built over the Strymon River in Thrace, and presumably over the other rivers for speed of movement. Roads were also built and paved, where necessary, in order to cope with wheeled transport. Finally, 
Guard posts, inns, and courier stations were established along the route to protect Persian lines of communication and to discourage any hostile action, particularly by the Thracians, that could threaten the safety of their forces while in Greece. These were all feats of exceptional ambition, which would have been beyond any other contemporary state. Xerxes' meticulous planning and preparation for his invasion of Greece contradicts Herodotus' portrayal of him as a foolish and headstrong autocrat. Meanwhile, in 482 BC, Babylon tried to take advantage of Xerxes' Greek attention by revolting again. It was short-lived, though, and they were subdued, and the result was that they were merged with Assyria as a single satrapy. In the spring of 481 BC, Xerxes assembled army contingents in Cappadocia, in case anyone else revolted while he was away, and then proceeded to Sardis. Pythios, a wealthy Lydian, entertained Xerxes and his advisors, and offered him money for the war. He was said to be the second richest man in all of the empire, next to the great king of course. For his generosity, Xerxes praised him and made him his guest friend. At the same time, Xerxes also sent heralds to various Greek polis, asking for earth and water. They deliberately avoided Athens and Sparta this time, though. Some cities gave in, especially in the north, such as the polis in Thessaly and Thebes. In fall 481 BC, in order to address the Persian threat, some of the strongest and largest Greek polis met in Corinth to swear a common oath to put aside individual quarrels, meaning the war between Athens and Agina ceased at this time. Also, this was when Aristides and the other ostracized exiles were recalled. Their aim was to fight the Persians together for the common Greek freedom and to free the Greeks on the islands off the coast of Asia Minor. This alliance was a simachia, meaning it was both offensive and defensive. This was the first union of Greek states since the mythical times of the Trojan War, and the first time we see the term Hellenes used. Herodotus does not formulate an abstract name for the union, but simply calls them Hoi Hellenes, or the Hellenes. For all those that had showed up to the meeting, only about a tenth of the total Greek polis joined the allied efforts, as only 70 of the approximately 700 Greek cities sent representatives. Nevertheless, this was remarkable for the disjointed Greek world, especially since many of the city-states in attendance were still technically at war with each other. The other 90% remained more or less neutral, awaiting the outcome of the confrontation before choosing a side, while others had already submitted earth and water to Xerxes. Sparta was officially appointed as hegemon on both land and sea and presided over the meetings, but all decisions were to be made by a council of all Greeks. It is believed that the probulos, or delegate, of each member state, large or small, had one vote and that decisions were arrived at by a majority of votes. However, this so-called Hellenic League really was dominated by Athens and Sparta. Also, there was no common treasury, so each polis had to supply their own soldiers and or ships. A number of measures were decided upon at this meeting. All polis who had medized voluntarily and not under compulsion, should have their land confiscated. Three spies were to be sent to investigate the Persian army at Sardis, and envoys were also to be sent to Argos, Syracuse, Crete, and Corsaira to request military aid. All four had opted to remain neutral. 
Finally, they decided that a second meeting should take place in the spring of the following year, when the reports of the spies and the envoys would be available, in order to decide upon Greek strategy for the upcoming war. Over the winter of 481-480 BC, Xerxes wintered at Sardis, where all contingents of his army flocked and began to train for the upcoming expedition. Herodotus claims that Xerxes levied troops from 46 subjected nations, including Indians, Ethiopians, and Arab camel riders. But the size of the army and navy is a very thorny problem, as the numbers given by Herodotus are impossibly high. He reports the total manpower was 5,283,220 troops. The infantry was said to have been 1,700,000 as well as another 300,000 later from the Greeks who had Medized. In addition, there were 80,000 cavalry, plus unknown amount of camels and chariots. As for the navy, there were 1,207 triremes and 3,000 transport ships. The playwright Aeschylus, in his Persi, or Persians, gives the exact same numbers, so it's quite probable that Herodotus used him as a source. Modern scholars have rightly rejected these numbers based on knowledge of the Persian military system, their logistical capabilities, the Greek countryside, and supplies available along the army's route. And so they tend to believe that the number was much closer to around 80,000 troops, which is still an unbelievably large number. Although the patriotic zeal of the victorious Greeks caused them to make up widely excessive numbers, it must be stressed that this was a mighty force regardless far bigger than anything that the Greeks had ever seen or faced in war. While at Sardis, the Persians managed to capture some Greek spies. Instead of torturing or executing them, as was what his generals had wanted, Xerxes indulged in some psychological warfare by giving them a guided tour of his whole camp, wanting the enormous size of his army to be known and reported accurately so that it would convince the resistant Greek cities to surrender rather than fight. He then sent the spies along their way unharmed, where they no doubt went straight to Corinth to tell the representatives of the League what they had seen. In March 480 BC, Xerxes set out from Sardis to Abydus, where his fleet was gathering at the mouth of the Hebrus River, which empties into the Hellespont. Before he left, Pythios the Lydian asked Xerxes to release his eldest of his five sons from the expedition, but Xerxes was angered by this request, and in a fit of spite, he ordered the eldest son to be executed, his body cut in half, and the two halves to be set up on either side of the road so that the army would march between them. This story is probably the case of Herodotus trying to make Xerxes look like a despotic autocrat again. Anyways, along the way to Abydos, Xerxes made a stop at the ruins of Troy. His priests offered libations to the dead heroes and sacrificed a thousand cattle to Athena, who was also the patron deity of Troy. The legendary heroes of Homer's Iliad were still very real, apparently even to the Persians, but it would be interesting to know whether Xerxes identified more with the Trojan heroes, who were enemies of the Greeks, than with the Greek heroes. He then continued on to Abydus. When he arrived, Xerxes and Artabanus have a brief discussion about the shortness of human life, and Artabanus commented on the bitter misfortunes that men suffer during their lives. Regardless of the vision that he received, He still feared that the expedition may fail due to Xerxes' two greatest enemies, the land and sea, because there will be few harbors able to shelter such a great fleet, and that advancing the army even farther into unknown lands risks famine. 
Xerxes replied that it is better to act boldly and suffer half of what you dread than to fear everything and never suffer anything. He went on to say that the great successes of the past Persian kings were not won except by taking great risks. Artabanus then pointed out the dangers of requiring the conquered Ionians to assist in the conquest of Athens, their mother city, to which Xerxes disagreed, recalling the loyalty of the Ionians at the Danube Bridge in his father's Scythian campaign, while also mentioning that if they did defy him, their wives and children were still back home, and thus they were effectively hostages. Then, he sent Artabanus back to Susa to govern the empire in his absence. Now the Persian army was finally ready to cross over into Thrace, led first by the Persian immortals. Herodotus said that it took seven days and seven nights for his entire army to cross the Hellespont on the two pontoon bridges. The whole army crossed with heavy equipment and cavalry, and there was no breaking of the planks, not only due to the weight of the army crossing, but also due to the choppy waters of the Hellespont. Herodotus reports that as Xerxes sat on an elevated marble throne, watching his entire army cross the bridge, he suddenly bursted into tears and wept in joy. The army marched northeast through the Chersonese before turning west around the Black Gulf and proceeding along the Thracian coastline. Xerxes halted his army at Doriscos, a vast coastal plain near Cape Sarpedon, into which the great river Hebros flows. Here, they were joined by the fleet, this is when Herodotus goes through the list of every contingent of his army and navy, and what nations are supplying what. It reads a lot like Homer's catalog of ships. Before moving on, Xerxes reorganized his troops into tactical units, replacing the national formations that he used earlier for the march. Afterwards, Xerxes was very proud of the army that he had assembled, and so he summoned Demaratus, the exiled Spartan king-turned-Persian advisor who accompanied him on the expedition, and asked him whether the Hellenes will actually stand to fight his overwhelming Persian army. Demaratus replied that he can only speak for the Spartans, and that they would fight, no matter how much they are outnumbered. He went on to say that the Spartans fear their law more than the Persians fear Xerxes, and will obey it and fight bravely, even to a bitter end. Xerxes thought that Demaratus was making idle boasts, and so he laughed out loud. The army then continued their advance towards Greece. Along the way, the army stopped at various cities, compelling the local men to join his own forces. Also, Herodotus reports that those cities that had the pleasure of hosting Xerxes and his army were reduced to impoverishment due to its immense expense. When the Persians reached Acanthus on the right finger of the Chalcidice Peninsula, the fleet and the army once again separated as the fleet sailed south through the newly built Mount Athos Canal and then around the Scythonia and Peleni peninsulas, recruiting men and ships as it proceeded. Entering the Thermaic Gulf, it anchored near Therma, on the territory entering Macedon, and waited for the army to arrive. Meanwhile, in April, the second meeting of the Hellenic League took place at Corinth. In addition to what they had heard from the spies, the news from their envoys was very discouraging. Advised by the Delphic Oracle not to join the Greek alliance, Argos had demanded impossible conditions as the price for their joining. They wanted a 30-year truce with Sparta and permitted to share the overall command with the Spartans. When told by the envoys that the Spartans would never cede control over the command, the Argives furiously sent them away. However, as we have seen, they had pro-Persian tendencies already, 
and it's just as likely that they had already formed a pact with the Persians, in which they agreed to remain neutral in the coming war. And thus cunningly, they offered terms to the Greeks, knowing full well that they would be refused. Similarly, Crete refused to send any help upon the advice of Delphi, which conspicuously was giving off many pro-Persian messages. There will be more on this shortly. Corsair had agreed to send 60 ships, but they would fail to arrive in time, allegedly held up by contrary winds, that being the Atesian wind, which blows hard from the northeast during the summer, and often prevented the ships from passing west to east by Cape Malia in southern Laconia. Herodotus, though, reports that there was suspicion that the Corsarians were playing a double game. They had beached their ships on the Peloponnesian coast and waited to see whether the Greeks or the Persians were victorious, with a suitable story ready for either alternative. Finally, Gelon, the tyrant of Syracuse, was receptive to aiding the Greeks, but only if he was in charge of either the army or the navy. When he was told that this was not possible, because Sparta was in charge. He sent the envoys packing and even took steps to meet eyes if the Persians would win. However, he wouldn't have been able to send support anyway, because unbeknownst to the Sicilian Greeks, Carthage was planning to launch an attack on Sicily at the time when the Persians attacked Greece, as we discussed in great detail in episode 29. However, a delegation had also arrived from Thessaly, with both an offer of and an appeal for help. Men of Greece, it is necessary to guard the pass into Olympus in order that Thessaly and the whole of Greece might be sheltered from war. We are now ready to guard it with you, but you must also send a great army. If you do not send one, know well that we will come to terms with the Persians. For it is not that we, acting alone as the defenders for the rest of Greece, should be destroyed on your behalf. This group of Thessalians who favored the Greek cause were clearly in opposition to the Alaidae of Larissa, who were referred to as the kings of Thessaly by Herodotus. The Aluidae had already allied Thessaly with Persia, possibly as early as Mardonius's first campaign, when Persian control over Thrace and Macedon was re-established, but certainly by when Xerxes was preparing for his invasion. They were even singled out by Xerxes for special praise. Regardless, the Hellenic League's desire to keep northern Greece inside the alliance and to have the services of the mighty Thessalian cavalry shaped its strategy for the beginning of the campaigning season of 480 BC. We mentioned the oracle at Delphi. Well, in the months leading up to the second meeting of the Hellenic League, the Greeks had consulted the Delphic oracle. The odds facing the Hellenic League were so great that the Pythia issued a stream of oracles discouraging resistance to the Persians. In addition to what she told Argos in Crete, she said that Sparta either shall be sacked by the children of Perseus or will mourn the loss of a king. The children of Perseus here refers to the Persians because in Greek mythology, Persians were descendants of Perseus, as we have mentioned. In regards to Athens, she said, Safe shall the wooden wall continue for thee and thy children. Do not await peacefully the gigantic army that comes from the mainland. Withdraw. Turn your backs, though someday you will still meet face to face. O divine Salamis, but thou shalt not destroy the children of women. The Athenians here debated what the wooden wall indicated. Some believed that it was the Acropolis, since at one point it was enclosed by thorn bushes, while others argued that it alluded to the ships. Themistocles, though, took the latter stance and argued that the wooden walls referred to their navy and that they should trust in the ships because if they do, 
there would be a victory at Salamis. Thus, probably due to his popularity at the time, he was able to convince the Athenian people to go along with his plan. Regardless, in response to the envoys of the Thessalians, the Greeks resolved to send an army by sea in order to guard the pass of Tempe. So in May, a force of 10,000 hoplites, under the command of a Spartan named Ioannitos, aided by the Athenian Themistocles, was sent by sea to Halos in the Gulf of Pagasai, where they marched by land to the pass of Tempe in Thessaly. Even though his kingdom was a vassal state to the Persians, the Macedonian king Alexander, who was the successor of Amyntas, was a proxenos and benefactor of Athens, perhaps having supplied timber for Themistocles' fleet. He appeased the Persians, but secretly gave aid to his Greek neighbors. And so, in keeping with this, he sent envoys to the Hellenic forces in June, warning them that Tempe could be bypassed by at least two other passes. So they thanked the envoys and agreed to abandon Tempe for a more defensible position. Then, the Greeks retreated back to Halys and sailed back to Corinth for another meeting on what to do now. The abandonment of Tempe meant the abandonment of Thessaly in northern Greece, and so very quickly, the rest of the Thessalians that hadn't Medized yet sent messengers to Xerxes, giving earth and water to the Persians, as it seemed help from the rest of the Greeks was not coming any longer. Such a swift and embarrassing reversal of military policy needs to be explained. Herodotus records that the chief cause of the withdrawal, as we mentioned, was that Tempe could be turned by the Persians, using a pass to the west of Tempe, meaning that the Persians could be marched or ferried by ship to the other end of the pass, and thus trap the defending Greek army in the pass itself. If Herodotus' explanation is right, it does seem strange that this information was not known to the Hellenic League, or that a small force was not sent first to do reconnaissance on the area. Furthermore, Xerxes' forces would not arrive at Tempe for at least two more months, which makes the early dispatch of 10,000 men seem unnecessary. It is possible that such a show of military force was intended to strengthen the anti-Persian faction in Thessaly and to force the pro-Persian faction into line behind the Greek cause. If this was the case, then the Greek withdrawal was caused by the absence of Thessalian unity and the fear of treachery by the supporters of the Aluidae for it would be impossible to defend all four passes from Macedon into Thessaly without the united support of the Thessalians. It would also seem that the Greeks had not yet recognized the need for a joint land and sea strategy, since there was no fleet in place to protect Tempe from being turned by sea. The loss of northern Greece now made the defense of central Greece a matter of the highest importance, at least to the states north of the Isthmus of Corinth. It was now late July and Xerxes was closing in, having arrived at Thermae in Macedon in just three months' time. After reuniting with their fleet, Xerxes and the army then marched ahead of the fleet through Macedon and southwards into Thessaly. Herodotus reports that the Persian fleet set out 11 days later and sailed to Magnesia in a single day, where it anchored at Cape Sepius. It seems most unlikely that a huge fleet could sail around 100 miles in a single day, and thus modern scholars are convinced that Herodotus does not give a clear, accurate timetable of this and some of the subsequent events. What is clear, though, is that Xerxes had determined that the army and navy should work closely in tandem, and this necessitated the early advance of the army to secure the safe anchorage on a friendly shore for the fleet. Meanwhile, 
After the return of the Greek forces from Tempe, there was a third meeting of the Hellenic League. A second strategy was therefore suggested to the Allies by Themistocles. He convinced everyone that instead of Tempe, they needed to defend the pass of the Hot Gates on the southern portion of the Malian Gulf. In Greek, Therma means hot and Pylai means gates. So this location was thus known as the Hot Gates or Thermopylae because hot springs were located there and because although it was a narrow pass, it was the gate or entrance into Greece from the north. It wasn't too far from Tempe and had to be passed on the route into Phocis, Boeotia, and then Attica. The pass at Thermopylae was narrower than Tempe too, as it was only two meters wide, with the sea on one side and unclimbable cliffs on the other, known as the Trachinian Rocks. Thus, the pass of Thermopylae was a perfect location for the Greeks to establish a defensive wall, despite the overwhelming numbers of the Persians. Furthermore, to prevent the Persians from bypassing Thermopylae by sea, the Allied navy would block the Straits of Artemisium, an open stretch of water only about six miles across between the northern tip of Euboea and mainland Greece, sitting opposite of Thermopylae. This dual strategy of Themistocles was adopted by the Hellenic League. The aim of Greek strategy at both Thermopylae and Artemision has been much debated by scholars, but it seems to have been based on both defensive and offensive elements. Thermopylae, if it was guarded by a sufficient number of troops, was virtually unassailable by a frontal attack, even with very superior numbers, and thus was a perfect defensive land position. Although the Persian army could not be defeated in such a position, its advance could be held up indefinitely, which would cause severe problems for Xerxes in his need to feed his large force. Such a stalemate on land would then force the Persians to take the offensive at sea against the Greek fleet. At sea, they were less heavily outnumbered and could fight in their chosen location in order to make use of their own strengths and to negate those of the enemy. It was thus at the sea that the Greeks would have the best chance of defeating or at least severely damaging the Persian forces. However, the two positions were totally interdependent, since defeat of either force would necessitate the withdrawal of the other. Thus, the fall of Thermopylae would allow the Persians to control the narrows of the Strait of Euripus, which is only 40 yards wide at Halkis, thus cutting off the Greek fleet's line of retreat. And the abandonment of Artemisium would allow the Persian fleet to turn the Greek army's position by sailing down the Euripus Strait and landing troops in its rear. Although Artemisium is 40 sea miles from Thermopylae and does not provide easy communications, as stated by Herodotus, and was not as narrow and confined as the Greeks would have ideally wished, its strategic position was crucial. The risk of a flank attack from Artemisium prevented the Persian fleet from sailing into the Malian Gulf without first attempting to destroy the Greek fleet, and its occupation prevented the landing of Persian troops in the north of the island of Euboea, who could have marched to Halkis and thus been in a position to turn Thermopylae and block the retreat of the Greek fleet. When the Allies received the news that Xerxes had already passed Mount Olympus in Macedon and was marching south through Thessaly, it was now mid-August, and the Spartans were once again celebrating their yearly festival of Carnea which lasted an entire month, during which time they were prohibited from fighting. Thus, Leonidas wasn't granted permission to lead the Spartan army northward. Nevertheless, he considered the threat so grave that he determined some prudence was necessary, and wanted to at least send an advanced guard ahead of the army while the Carnea was going on. 
Thus, he assembled his royal guard of 300 Spartiates, or the Hippace, to quote-unquote defend him, getting around such a restriction. His customary unit of elite young men were thus replaced with veterans who had living sons to continue their family names, because Leonidas knew that this was going to be a suicide mission. Plutarch recounts that before he departed, his wife Gorgo asked what she should do if he did not return, to which Leonidas replied, marry a good man and have good children. And so Leonidas and his 300 set out to meet the Persians. Joining them were 900 Helot and Perioikoi attendants and light infantry, as well as a coalition force of Peloponnesians, that being 2,120 Arcadians, 400 Corinthians, 200 from Phleas, and 80 from Mycenae, and Boeotians, that being 1,000 Phocians, 1,000 Locrians, 700 Thespians, and 400 Thebans, that were picked up en route to Thermopylae. Altogether, Leonidas commanded an army with a grand total of 7,100 soldiers. The disparity between the comparatively small size of the army and the slightly larger naval forces, more on that shortly, together with other factors, has led some modern scholars to doubt that the Spartans genuinely supported the previously mentioned strategy of mounting a full and effective defense of Thermopylae and central Greece preferring privately to make the decisive stand at the Isthmus of Corinth. And so the festival of the Carnea was just a convenient excuse. If it was dire enough, the festival wouldn't hamper them and religious truces could be overlooked. Furthermore, technically the Olympic truce had gone into effect for the summer of 480 BC, but the Greeks violated that when they fought against other Greeks, those in the Persian army that is, because the situation called for it. So there's no good reason to believe that the Spartans couldn't have done the same if they had wanted to. Support for this view comes from Herodotus. He says, and I quote, the proposal that won the day. So clearly the decision of the Hellenic League to defend Thermopylae was not unanimous. The main opposition presumably came from the Peloponnesian delegates who did not wish to send their military contingents so far north, preferring to make the isthmus at Corinth the main line of defense. It is believed that the Spartans, although sharing this opinion, did not openly oppose this strategy, since a refusal to defend central Greece and the island of Euboea could have fatally weakened the Greek forces and of Sparta's claim to leadership, and would have led many to Medes. Furthermore, it is argued, there are three additional pieces of evidence which show that the Spartans knew that the army was too small to hold Thermopylae and were unwilling to send reinforcements there. But to stop their allies in central Greece from medizing, they sent the minimum possible force, with no intention of reinforcing this army. First, when Leonidas was marching towards Thermopylae, he sent out an invitation to the Locrians and Phocians to join the Greek forces. Herodotus writes, For the Greeks themselves invited them, telling them through messengers that they themselves had come as an advanced guard of the rest, and that the rest of the allies were expected to arrive any day. This is clear evidence that the 4,000 Peloponnesians were only an advanced guard, and therefore were insufficient for the task of holding Thermopylae. Second, the Spartan claim that they could not come at once with their full force, owing to their celebration of the religious festival of the Carnea, was a convenient excuse to delay the sending of troops until the fall of Thermopylae. Third, when the Greek army at Thermopylae finally came face to face with the Persian army and realized its size, 
Leonidas sent messengers to the Greek cities because he knew they were too few to withstand them. All of this evidence reveals that Sparta believed the fall of Thermopylae was inevitable and therefore its defense was unwise, but political considerations dictated that they had to make some sort of effort and give the appearance of taking the defense of Thermopylae seriously. And so the valiant king, Leonidas, realizing the oracle that had been given, led his forces to what ultimately was a suicide mission. On the other hand, Herodotus's account of the fighting at Thermopylae suggests that the Greek army could have held Thermopylae indefinitely, as Themistocles and Leonidas, at least, were fully committed to the Thermopylae-Artemisium line of defense. So narrow was the pass at Thermopylae that at the two ends, known as the west and east gates respectively, there was only room for one single wagon trail. On one side of the pass, there was the Malian Gulf, and on the other was the steep edges of the Kaladromon Mountain. At the point where the cliff edges were at their most impossible was the so-called middle gate. The space had been made even narrower because a man-made wall was built across by the Phocians. And so upon arrival, Leonidas immediately set about rebuilding and strengthening that wall, awaiting Xerxes and his army's arrival. But the pass had one weakness, a goat trail that circled the complete length of the pass and would have allowed Xerxes to surround them. In order to guard this pass, Leonidas posted a thousand Phocians, banking on their local knowledge of the area and his hope that if they were discovered, only light troops would be sent against them. He gambled so much on this that not even one Spartiate was spared to lead them. Meanwhile, the Greek fleet had sailed north and arrived at Cape Artemisium, where they beached their ships. Fighting at sea in ancient times was difficult and dangerous, as it was very unpredictable. The Persians preferred utilizing lighter, faster ships for maneuvering. They would latch onto an enemy ship and have their archers pepper the deck with arrows and then send in the troops to seize it. While the Greeks kept some marines on board for this strategy, their main tactic was using heavier, sturdier ships with an underwater beak for ramming. The idea was to have their sailors build up enough momentum that it could smash into the side of an enemy ship, puncturing and sinking it. If that didn't work, they could board the ship and fight the enemy in hand-to-hand combat until they were able to commandeer the vehicle. This is a very effective strategy, but it requires a skilled, synced-up crew. The Battle of Artemisium was the first real test of Athens' new triremes, but the crew manning them was inexperienced. The Greek fleet consisted of 271 triremes and 9 pentaconters. The two biggest contingents were 147 Athenian and 40 Corinthian with 11 other poles also supplying ships. Although the Athenians provided the most ships, commanding the fleet was the Spartan Aribiades, who did not belong to either of the royal families. Everyone wanted a Spartan to lead, so Themistocles didn't push the issue and relented for the sake of Greek unity. Their main goal was to prevent the Persian ships from reaching Thermopylae and flanking Leonidas, or bypassing them and sailing to Attica. The Persians had their fleet at the island of Skyathos to the northeast of Euboea. The Greek naval position was just as strong and potentially just as vulnerable. If Xerxes sailed around the eastern coast of Euboea, then he could strike directly at Athens or bottle up the Greek ships in the pass. Literally everything depended on the Greeks holding both of these bottlenecks. The Greeks had sent a lookout force of three triremes to the island of Skyathos 
off the southeastern coast of the Magnesia Peninsula to provide warning when the Persian fleet would arrive. Finally, after two weeks, on August 13th, 10 Persian ships that were sent to scout the area encountered the lookout force of the three Greek triremes. The Greeks tried to flee, but were overtaken by the speedier Persian ships. One of the captured sailors had his throat cut as a sacrifice, while the rest were enslaved. It should be noted that this type of ritual human sacrifice is not known to have occurred at any other point by the Persians. Herodotus, though, clearly believed it took place. Regardless, the ease at which they captured these ships confirmed their tactical advantage, and so the encouraged Persians moved their fleet closer to the straits on the Magnesian coast, close to Cape Sepius. Fire beacons from the mountains at Skathos, though, had appeared and the Greeks took this as a signal that the Persian fleet had arrived and was sailing east around Euboea, and so they withdrew their fleet south to Halkis, halfway down on the western coast of the island, but left watchers on the northern coast to inform them of Persian action. This withdrawal to Halkis therefore gave the Allies the opportunity to escape from the Straits of Euboea if the Persians chose to travel around the outside of Euboea towards Attica but also allowed them enough time to return to Artemisium, if necessary. As it turned out, the Greeks' mistaken interpretation of Persian movements was a godsend, because that evening a powerful storm hit the coast of Magnesia and the Sporides Islands. It was probably what is known as a Hellespontor, a northeasterly storm from the Hellespont. Since the Persian fleet was so large, they all couldn't moor on the small beach where the fleet put in so they had to lay at anchor farther offshore. Well, when the storm hit, this massive fleet of the Persians, around 1,200 ships, couldn't all get to the shoreline in time, as winds and rain tore into them or caused them to crash into the rocky shoreline, nearly destroying a third of the fleet, or around 400 ships. The storm lasted for three days. On the second day of storming, on August 14th, the Greek lookouts informed them all about the details of the Persian shipwreck and the arrival of both the Greek and Persian forces at Thermopylae, so they decided to work their fleet back to Artemisium for the second time and laid anchor there. Also on August 14th, Xerxes and his massive army finally arrived at Thermopylae and saw that a small army was gathered there. So he sent a scout on horseback to see how many of them there were and what they were doing. What the scout saw, though, confused him, as the Spartans were doing calisthenics, combing their long hair, and oiling themselves up as if they were preparing to compete in the Olympic Games. After he had ascertained their number and every other detail about them, he rode back undisturbed. In fact, the Spartans had completely ignored him. He reported everything that he had seen as Xerxes, who was perplexed at what he had just heard. Amazed at the small size of the army opposing him, Xerxes called for the former Spartan king to explain to him what the Spartans are about. Demaratus, though, reiterated to Xerxes exactly what he had told him before, for which Xerxes had laughed at him. He advised him that these men have come to hold the pass and fight the Persians for it, and grooming themselves was how they prepared for death. Xerxes once again laughed in befuddlement. Herodotus here is showing that cultural incomprehension that Persians and Greeks had towards each other. Anyways, Xerxes was still not convinced that the Spartans were serious about fighting him, with so few numbers, so he gave them four days of peace in hopes that they would change their minds and leave. The Spartans, though, weren't going to leave, 
although the rest of the Peloponnesians thought it best to return to the Peloponnese to protect the Isthmus, but this was vetoed by Leonidas. However, he knew the seriousness of the situation and sent a messenger back to Sparta, requesting reinforcements as quickly as possible, even though the festival of the Carnea was not yet over, as we mentioned earlier. It's not stated by Herodotus, but the whole period of peace may have only lasted for as long as it did because of the storm that was raging off the Magnesian coast, and thus both the Greeks and Persians at Thermopylae and at sea remained inactive. Finally, on the fourth day after the storm had started, that being August 17th, the skies were finally clear, and so the Persians sailed what was left of their fleet south along the coast and stationed their remaining ships at Aphetai in southern Magnesia and in the safe waters of the Gulf of Pagasai. But a squadron of 15 ships had sailed out much later than the others, and apparently they were confused as to their destination, as they continued to sail south, right into the Greek fleet. They were immediately captured, interrogated, and sent away to Corinth in chains. The Greeks learned from them the size of the Persian fleet, and when they finally saw it up close, many of the Peloponnesians considered fleeing back to the Isthmus. The Eubians, though, afraid of being abandoned, pleaded to Themistocles to convince the other Greeks to stay. Herodotus says that he managed to do this by bribing the Spartan commander, Eurybiades, and the Corinthian commander, Idamantus, the latter of whom had threatened to sail away. Meanwhile, the Persians were eager to engage the Greeks, but feared that a direct attack would cause them to retreat southwards again towards Halkis. So that night, they decided to send a detachment of 200 of their seaworthy remaining ships, which was probably around 800 at this point, to travel around the eastern coast of Euboea to encircle the Greek fleet and block their line of retreat. On the next day, August 18th, a Persian deserter, a Greek man named Scylias, from the Halkidian city of Scione, warned them of the Persian trap. Herodotus says that he dived into the sea at Aphetai, and swam the nine miles between the two fleets in order to get this info to the Greeks. Upon hearing this news, the Greek commanders began to deliberate what to do. They ultimately resolved to meet this detachment in order to prevent themselves from being trapped, though they wanted to leave by nightfall to prevent the Persians from becoming aware of their plans. They probably realized that this situation presented them with an opportunity to destroy an isolated part of the Persian fleet. So the Greeks decided to engage the main Persian fleet in the late afternoon in order to convince the Persians that they were planning to stay that night at Artemisium. Still having around 800 ships though, the Persians still drastically outnumbered the Greek fleet almost 3 to 1. As the Persians advanced in a wide crescent-shaped formation, the Greeks pulled back, grouping their triremes in a circle with their bowels pointed towards the enemy. Thus, the Persians had no sides to latch onto for boarding. They began to circle around the triremes, at which point the Greeks surprised them, bursting out of the circle at full speed and crashing directly into their ships. In the chaos, the Greeks fell back to Artemisium, and the Persians did not give chase. They instead returned to Aphetai. In this minor skirmish, the Persians lost 30 ships. During the night, another storm broke out around Mount Pelion on Magnesia. This one was probably a thunderstorm possibly with a southeasterly wind. Well, it drove the wrecked ships and the dead bodies of that day's sea battle ashore to the Persian fleet. This caused panic amongst Persian ranks. 
Also, while the storm prevented the Greeks from setting off southwards to counter the Persian detachment, it was another godsend as it also hit the Persian detachment of ships and caused all 200 of their ships to slam against the rocky coast of Euboea. So for those keeping count, the Persians were now down to about 555 of their 1,200 original ships. Since heavy rainstorms were extremely rare in the summer in Greece, and the Persians had part of their fleet destroyed in two of them, this was perceived as an ill omen by the Persians, while it encouraged the Greeks that the gods were on their side. Earlier that same day, the four days of peace had expired, so Xerxes sent out an emissary to Leonidas. The Greeks were offered their freedom, and Leonidas would be given the kingship over all of Greece if he joined Xerxes. Leonidas answered, If you had any knowledge of the noble things of life, you would refrain from coveting others' possessions. But for me, to die for Greece is better than to be the sole ruler over the people of my race. When Leonidas refused these terms, the emissary reported back to Xerxes, who then sent him out one last time with a message that this was the last chance for peace and for them to surrender their weapons. At this point, Leonidas famously responded with Molan Labe, or come and take them. When the Persian emissary returned empty-handed, Xerxes lost his temper and battle ensued. From atop a large hill where he had his throne set up, the Persian king ordered a full frontal attack on the Greeks. From about 150 yards away, the first wave of attack was a volley of arrow fire from his archers, but the heavily armored Greek hoplites grouped together and their bronze shields and helmets easily shrugged the arrows off. Plutarch records that while the Persians rained down arrows on the shielded phalanx, one Spartan complained that the arrows made it impossible to see the sun, to which another Spartan replied, If the Mede chooses to hide in the sun, so much better for us to fight in the shade. Then, Xerxes sent in waves of around 10,000 men, including the Immortals, led by Hydarnus. But fighting in front of the Phocian Wall, at the narrowest part of the pass, which enabled them to fight with as few soldiers as possible. The superior Greek hoplites, in their phalanx formation, easily repelled the Persian forces. Their wicker shields and shorter spears and swords were no match for the armor of the Greek hoplites. Herodotus says that the units for each Greek city were kept together and rotated in and out of the battle to prevent fatigue. Herodotus also says that the Greeks killed so many Persian soldiers that Xerxes stood up three times from his seat, screaming in anger. It became clear to Xerxes that while he had plenty of combatants, he had few warriors. Xerxes was so stunned by his utter failure that he ordered the immortals in for a second push that same day. These elite troops fared no better than the rest, and the battle quickly turned against them too, forcing a retreat in the end to the first day's conflict. As the sun set, the pass still belonged to Leonidas. The next day, on August 19th, the Persian fleet, now recovering from two storm wrecks, declined to attack the Greeks. They chose instead to remain idle and to fix their fleet. News of the shipwreck off Euboea reached the Greeks that day, as 53 reserve ships sailed north from Athens, to tell of the storm and provide reinforcements. Meanwhile, Xerxes made a second assault on Leonidas, believing that since their numbers were so few, they would be hurting from their wounds and would be vulnerable. Xerxes was mistaken, though, as the Persians fared no better that day either. 
At one point, the Spartans feigned a retreat, only to spin around and totally surprise the Persians, cutting many of them down in their tracks. Some Spartiates were lost, but their attack left a deep mark on the Persians, as Xerxes once again withdrew his forces back to their camp, and as Herodotus puts it, he was totally perplexed. Realizing that a frontal assault was getting him nowhere, and his huge army needed food and had likely foraged as much as they could from the area north of the pass, he knew that he needed a way around the gates. Fortunately for him, his army's continued presence was also a problem for the locals, who found their lands devastated by his troops. And so a local man from Mollus, named Iphialtes, lured by Persian gold, informed him of the Mount Anopia goat path around the cliffs to Leonidas' rear, and offered to act as a guide for the Persian army. However, Xerxes probably already had his men climbing up those cliffs looking for a passage. After all, the Persians had managed to scale the sheer mountain walls of Sardis before, so it's not like this was anything new. Ephialtes, if he even existed, probably just sped things up a bit. Furthermore, the Thessalians, who were allied to Persia and actively helping him, would have probably already known about this pass. For his part, though, the name Ephialtes received a lasting stigma, as it came to mean nightmare in the Greek language, and symbolized the archetypal traitor in Greek culture. Regardless, Xerxes was delighted, and that night he sent his commander, Hadarnes, with a force of 20,000 men, including what was left of the immortals, down the path near Alpinos, on the Malian Gulf. At daybreak the following day, on August 20th, the small contingent of a thousand Phokians that Leonidas had guarding the rear became suddenly aware of the outflanking Persians, who had snuck up on them in the dark. When they started shooting them with a barrage of arrows, the Phokians fled to the peak of the mountain. Learning from one of the Phokian deserters that they had easily scattered and not held the path, and that the Persians were now descending the mountain, Leonidas called a council of his officers. Most of the Greeks argued for a withdrawal. Leonidas, though, resolved to defend the pass with the Spartans, and this choice has been the subject of much discussion. It is commonly argued that Sparta's code of honor did not allow them to retreat, but it seems that it was actually their refusal to retreat from Thermopylae that later gave rise to the notion that the Spartans never retreated. It is also possible that Leonidas was well aware of the words of the oracle, and thus committed to sacrifice his life in order to save Sparta. However, since the prophecy was specific to him only, this seems a poor reason to commit other men to fight to the death. Regardless of why, he perceived his allies' lack of zeal and their reluctance to remain in fight, and so, Leonidas chose to form a rear guard with his other Spartans, so that the other Greek contingents, who did not wish to stay, could get away. After all, if all the troops had retreated at once, the open ground beyond the pass would have allowed the Persian cavalry to run the Greeks down. If they had all remained at the pass, they all would have been encircled and would eventually have all been killed. By covering the retreat and continuing to block the pass simultaneously, Leonidas could save around 5,000 or so men, who would be able to fight at some later point. Thus, he dismissed his Peloponnesian allies, but the contingent of 700 thespians, led by Demophilius, refused to leave and committed themselves to the fight as well probably because the Persians controlled their land already, and thus they had nothing to go back to. Also staying were 400 Thebans, who were Greek loyalists and who also could not return back to pro-Persian Thebes anyway, 
in addition to around 700 helots, making a rough total of 2,100, not the last stand of the 300 that would become known as the greatest and most inspirational battle of the ancient world. At dawn, Xerxes made libations, while Leonidas instructed his men, saying, Eat a good breakfast, for tonight we dine in Hades, or the underworld. Once dawn broke, with the immortals still descending the mountain, a Persian force of 10,000 men charged at the Greek front. Leonidas moved his forces closer to the West Path's entrance, where the road was wider. This was less defensible, but it also freed up more Greeks to participate in the fighting, to kill as many Persians as possible. Many Persians fell, and the regiment commanders were behind them, whipping each and every man, urging them to move forward. Many fell into the sea to their death as well, but even more were trampled alive by one another in this chaotic melee. The Greeks fought hard, with reckless desperation and no regard for their own lives, all while maintaining phalanx discipline. But their spears began to splinter and shatter, as they saw too much action in the last few days. So they turned to their ziphoi, or short swords. But in such brutal, close conflict, the phalanx started to break down. In this struggle, two brothers of Xerxes were killed, as well as Leonidas, who was shot down by Persian archers. A terrible struggle ensued for control of his corpse, with the Greeks ultimately winning. The Greeks managed to rout the Persians four times in this onslaught, before retiring to the narrow pass for their famous last stand, when they perceived that the Immortals and Iphialtes had finally made it around the pass and began to close in from the rear. The Thebans surrendered to the Persians, but the remaining Greeks banded together on a nearby hill behind the Phocian Wall and fought to the last one. Xerxes ordered the wall torn down and the hill surrounded, and had his archers rain down arrows until every last Greek was dead. Although the Greeks had lost control of the pass, they had shown Xerxes what only a few thousand warriors could do, taking out nearly 20,000 of his men, compared to their 2,100 casualties. As Xerxes surveyed the carnage, he found the body of Leonidas. In a very un-Persian-like behavior, he chopped off his head, stuck it on a pole, and crucified his body in a fit of rage. Maybe because he was grieving his two slain brothers, or was so furious that his invasion had been delayed by a week. Herodotus says that this was very uncommon for the Persians, as they traditionally treated valiant warriors with great honor, and so this is proof that Xerxes, who was prone to rage, felt greater animosity for Leonidas than he had felt for any other man. After the battle, the Thebans, who had surrendered to the Persians, tried to convince Xerxes that they had been forced to fight against their will. Xerxes didn't believe them, though. Some were killed, while most were branded and then enslaved. Xerxes then summoned the former Spartan king, Demaratus, and admitted to him that what he had said proved to be true. He then asked him for advice on how to overcome the Spartans at the least possible cost to his forces. Demaratus advised him to send part of his fleet to occupy the island of Cathera and to carry the war from there directly against Sparta to embroil the Spartans at home. He predicted that if the Persians did not do this, they would face harder and more costly battles than Thermopylae at the Isthmus of Corinth. Xerxes' brother, Achaemenes, though, advised Xerxes not to follow Demaratus' advice, but to keep his forces concentrated as they advanced, because as he predicted, the Spartans will not recover from their recent losses and won't be much of a challenge any longer. Xerxes, mistakenly, as we will see, decided to follow his brother's advice, 
but still praised Demaratus as a friend and trustworthy advisor. In another anecdote, this one told by Plutarch, Xerxes was curious as to what the Greeks had been trying to do, presumably because they had so few men, and thus had some Arcadian deserters interrogated in his presence. The answer was, all the other men were participating in the Olympic Games. When Xerxes asked what the prize was for the winner, the answer was an olive wreath. Upon hearing this, Tigranes, a Persian general, said, Good heavens, Mardonius, what kind of men are these that you have pitted us against? It is not for riches that they contend, but for honor. The poet Simonides composed a well-known epigram, based on Herodotus, which was engraved as an epitaph on a commemorative stone placed on top of the burial mound of the Spartans, the hill on which the last of them died. The original stone has not survived, but it was engraved on a new stone in 1955, which still stands today. The text reads, Go, stranger, to Lacaidemon, and tell that here, obeying her orders, we fell. Additionally, there is a modern bronze statue of Leonidas at the site in honor of the Spartan king, as well as one dedicated to the 700 thespians. Archaeologically, a large number of bronze arrowheads has been excavated from the same hill. Even 2,500 years later, Thermopylae is arguably the most famous battle in European ancient history, repeatedly referenced in ancient and popular contemporary culture. In Western culture, at least, it is the Greeks who are lauded for their performance in battle. However, within the context of the Persian invasion, Thermopylae was undoubtedly a defeat for the Greeks. Despite their heavy losses, forcing the pass was strategically a Persian victory, but the successful retreat of the bulk of the Greek troops was in its own sense a victory as well. The battle itself had showed what a few free men willing to do anything for victory against the invaders could accomplish, and the defeat at Thermopylae had turned Leonidas and the men under his command into martyrs. That boosted the morale of all Greek soldiers, Spartans and non-Spartans alike, in the second Persian invasion. For centuries, military scholars have lionized the Spartans for their courage, honor, and sacrifice at Thermopylae, because none of them left the pass alive. However, that last part is a common misconception, because in fact, two of the 300 Spartans did not actually perish in that battle. Eurotas and Aristodemus both suffered from ophthalmia, a serious case of eye disease, and were dismissed from the army to return back to Sparta. Well, when Eurotas learned of the Persian advance around the mountain, he ordered his helot to give him his arms and lead him to the battlefield, where he charged blindly into the battle and was thus killed. But Aristodemus went back to Sparta and was met with disgrace and dishonor. Not a single Spartan would speak to him, only to call him Aristodemus the Trembler, meaning he got scared and ran away from battle. Herodotus says that the Spartans wouldn't have felt this way if there had only been one person suffering from eye disease who was dismissed. But Aristodemus had the bad fortune that Eurotos suffered the same disease, and he still gave up his life for Sparta. He would get the opportunity to acquit himself at Plataea, though, but that's for a future episode. Another Spartan, named Pantetes, had been sent away as a messenger to Thessaly, and so did not participate in the battle. When he returned to Sparta, he also suffered such dishonor, but he wouldn't get the chance to acquit himself, because he couldn't handle the disgrace and dishonor and he decided to hang himself. Meanwhile, that same day, unaware of what was happening at Thermopylae, the Persian fleet had readied itself and was eager to engage the Greeks on the sea as well, thinking that it probably wouldn't go over so well with Xerxes, 
if they didn't have a successful engagement against the Greek fleet. When the Greeks saw that the Persian fleet was sailing towards them with their crescent formation, they sailed out to engage them. In the ensuing battle, the two sides were equally matched, and both gave all that they had. The Greeks countered, but clever tricks didn't work this time. The two sides fought all day long, and by nightfall, each side lost nearly a hundred ships, which was a much bigger blow to the smaller Greek fleet. Most of the Greek losses were taken by the Athenians, too. Herodotus reports that around half of their 147 ships were wrecked, so that being around 70, 75. Returning to Artemisium, such were their losses that the Greeks knew that they probably couldn't hold up for another bout. So when news arrived that the Greek forces had all fallen at Thermopylae, Eurybiades immediately ordered a retreat to Salamis, as holding the Straits of Artemisium now no longer held any strategic purpose. Regardless, the path to Athens was now clear, and thus Xerxes would finally get to enact revenge for his father and for the burning of Sardis. Will Athens be safe behind their wooden walls? A Spartan king had now lost his life, so did this mean that the oracle was fulfilled and Sparta was now safe? Find out all this and more next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 38, Behind the Wooden Walls. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes in your phone or listening device every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you're checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Finally, now that the show has gained some traction, I decided to create a Patreon page in case anyone felt inclined to contribute to the creation of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. There is a link on the right-hand side of the website. But don't worry, the podcast will still remain free regardless, but it is an expensive endeavor to create a podcast after all, with the cost of website hosting and the purchasing of equipment and the time and effort required to research, write, record, and edit a show. So if you're feeling generous, consider supporting the show by making a monthly donation. If you'd rather just do a one-time donation, there is also a PayPal link on the right-hand side of the website. Just click on the Donate button. Patreon allows you to pledge money, either for every episode or per month. It can be as little as a dollar a month if you please. That amounts to a can of soda or a cup of tea or coffee a month. And while it may seem insignificant, if many people pledge that amount, it can really add up quickly. Either way, I would be eternally grateful. Speaking of which, I would like to give a huge thanks to listener Al Ozanoff, Andrea Peterson, Patrick G., and Alex for their pledges. I cannot tell you enough how thankful I am for your support. And once again, thanks to everyone else for your continued support in making this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled, The Battle of Thermopylae, from his album, The Battle of Thermopylae. If you like what you heard, and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientliar.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify.